trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Hi and thanks for tuning in today. This is the first instalment with a further to come soon covering oil and gas. We've talked on the show before about resources companies, tech companies, industrials and biotechs, but never specifically oil and gas. We think it's really topical at the moment given the current discussions and media around new energy sources, ESG and especially the price of energy overall during 2022. Given the somewhat binary nature, especially when you're drilling for oil and gas, it's understandably a space that people look for with volatile price moves and often that's where 10 baggers can be found. So we cover off a lot of stuff in this episode. We're talking about the technical aspects of exploration, measurement, and what goes into finding a new resource. Just for a timestamp, we recorded this in August 2022, and we've got a further instalment to come early in the new year. Well, we hope you enjoy the episode and learn something from it. Thank you for joining us, listeners. Today we have a special guest, Michael Dadamo. Michael is a geoscientist with over seven years' experience in the upstream petroleum sector, and he pivoted almost two years ago into financial services. Michael, thank you for joining us, mate. Thanks for having us, guys. Uh, looking forward to it. Terrific. Mate, we're really excited to, to talk about this. I guess just to get us started, are you able to provide a bit of an overview into the oil and gas industry? You know, obviously, there's been a bit of movement in, in the space with, towards greener, sustainable investments. Maybe take listeners back by starting, you know, why oil is important for in industry. So, I mean, it's been a uh, pretty interesting time for oil over the last eight years. Um, I joined the industry at the start of uh, 2013, probably more so the end of 2013, sorry. And, uh, yeah, since then, uh, we've seen a few price wars, low oil price environment. Uh, and what's that sort of done is, is given people the hope uh, of moving into into a greener, more renewable uh, source of energy. Um, I think oil is important for all these things to sort of work. Obviously, we're talking about uh, environments with electric cars, uh, and you know, at the moment, oil is still important for keeping those batteries charged. And uh, I think that it's still got a bit of a, a uh, run ahead of it. Um, and now, what we're seeing is high oil price environment where investment is starting to shift towards oil again. Um, there was definitely a period there where ESG was looking like some of the hottest uh, investments to be involved in. Uh, but now, uh, given what's taken place over the last eight years, plus the Ukraine sort of uh, powder keg, uh, we're now seeing a renewed interest in sector. And I think there's at least a generation of people sort of my age that don't really know oil and gas too well because there hasn't really been any investment and there's been no reason to look into it. And now that's starting to change and hopefully I can uh, teach people a few things on this podcast. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned um, your age there, Michael. I won't get you to disclose exactly what it is, but that's perhaps a good pivot to just give us a bit of uh, your, a bit of an overview of your background perhaps and what you got 
what got you into this um, part of the industry? Okay, so uh, originally I studied geology. I did a Bachelor of Science at UWA, uh, majored in geology and geography, and then I ended up doing an honours in petroleum geology, which was pretty much focused on petroleum geology. Um, I think with petroleum geology in general around the world, uh, just a pure undergrad doesn't usually get you uh, into the industry. So the honours for me was important for, uh, for getting myself into that side of uh, geology. Um, originally, when I started geology, I didn't really have any intention to go into petroleum geology. Uh, but uh, during the time I was studying, we weren't really seeing much activity uh, in the small cap or at least the mining sector, other than maybe iron ore was ripping. Um, from a geological standpoint, uh, I probably get in trouble for saying this by a few people, but iron ore geology is not super exciting. Uh, there was certainly a good opportunity to, to work in that space when I left uni and they were offering some pretty good money to people to, uh, to lure them into iron ore. But yeah, I, I basically went down the uh, oil and gas route because I thought it was kind of more stable, I guess. But uh, by the end of 2014 and the Saudis and uh, having price wars with the US shale uh, producers, um yeah it was it's been a bit of a bumpy ride so that was uh started the start of uh 2014 and then i remained a geoscientist until uh early 2021 where i pivoted into i guess corporate finance as such uh broking uh joined jp equity uh with the goal of trying to bring in uh geoscience projects uh my focus is obviously ge uh, petroleum geology but I also have a small background and, and a bit of knowledge on hard rock uh, geology, so I'm not completely useless on that front. Um, but yeah, I think the guys at JP are bullish on oil, uh, as I think a lot of the world is starting to realise there's uh, there's money to be made there in the next few years. And uh, so that was, that was sort of a timing thing for me. And fortunately, I have I still have a lot of uh, friends that uh, operate in the corporate finance broking space, so I had an existing network there. So for me, it was a fairly uh, easy transition and I certainly had a lot of people that could help me along the way. That's terrific, Michael. You mentioned a bit about the underinvestment and I guess uh, the Saudi uh, Saudi uh, situation versus the US. Without getting too stuck in the macro, I think it is important just for someone picking up this information for the first time, just give us a bit of an overview about the sort of macro theme for, for oil and gas exploration. Yeah, so end of 2014, the oil price basically dipped. Uh, I think it hit down to the low 20s. Um, what had happened was you had the Saudis that were pumping oil like they always have been. Um, they, they pump at a relatively low cost. And then what happens is you had newer technologies coming in, which is basically shale gas and shale oil. Um, it's new. Uh, I'll touch on it a little bit later on why it's so different to conventional oil exploration or oil production. But... Basically, as time goes on, we as a as, as a as a race, we get smarter and we start to figure out ways to uh, to extract things from the earth, like we always have been able to. It gets better and better with time, uh, and basically, it come to a point where the Saudis thought, "No, nah, we want to uh, we want to try and uh, essentially bankrupt these shale oil and gas producers who um who have been borrowing money from the banks to produce." Uh, so they thought, "We're going to tank the uh, we're going to tank the oil price." by producing more oil out of our low cost environment. And ultimately what happened is that it, it did sink the oil price of the low 20s. And then over the years sort of following that, 
it eventually it was it was low for a while and eventually started creeping back up but what ended up happening is the shell producing actually kind of adapted so they haven't actually killed them all uh there is still a bit of investment in uh in shale oil and gas and now it's obviously starting to ramp up massively given the uh, oil price environment but i think it's important to touch on the fact that uh the industry is driven by the oil price uh when it is low investment into exploration uh dies off very suddenly some of these massive majors and super majors as soon as the oil price dips you know they they're not uh they don't hesitate to cut back on their exploration expenditure you know they get them they get a tap on the shoulder from the uh big dogs up top and uh that's ended up happening it feeds down into exploration teams and uh yeah, to be honest, I was pretty fortunate having operated in what was a purely uh, exploration company. Uh, I was pretty fortunate to have uh, held a job throughout that entire time. And uh, now we're in a little bit more healthy oil price environment, albeit the uh, the brief period in early 2020 when the oil price sunk again down and uh, futures, I think, were trading in negative value, which personally I hadn't seen before. Um, but yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing a more uh, healthy environment now. Fantastic. And that's a nice summary, I suppose, of the, some of the supply sort of side and the pricing dynamics. Could you give us a bit of a background or a bit of an understanding of the um, industrial uses of petroleum products that are exported? Obviously, there's like petrol people put in the car, but there's a lot more uses, obviously, to oil and gas that ex- as are extracted and maybe some of the demand drivers for... Um, so, yeah, I mean, usage obviously is split into two components. You've got your oil and your gas. Um, with oil, we see predominantly used uh, for transport, I think road roughly uh, constitutes about 50% of oil usage. Um, but then you've got things like aviation, uh, shipping, uh, as well as plastics uh, and resins. Uh, when it comes to gas, it's predominantly used uh, for power generation. Um, and China's by far the biggest user of that. Um, but yeah, they, it kind of depends what you're looking at. Um, you know, won't really talk too much about fossil fuels as a whole, but coal's also used a lot for, for power generation. Michael, thanks for that. Where do you see the demand and supply imbalance that's arisen from the ethical, sustainable investment sort of thematic that's that's taken place over the last year or so? So I think one thing's certain, uh, barring the year when COVID hit and demand kind of dropped off, our energy consumption has kind of steadily increased over you know the last few decades um, and then what happens is as it's increasing there's basically an, a, a new need or there's a there's a larger need for for you know fossil fuels and other sources of uh, energy so we're in this weird spot where the energy requirements increase every year uh, but we're trying to pivot to a renewable source of energy that we don't quite have the capacity to fulfill all of our energy needs just yet. So I think in terms of the demand and the supply, right now the world is using a lot of oil um, and we're seeing that as the US goes and, and begs the Saudis for more oil, that they're at a point where they're saying we can't really, we don't have the capacity to, um, to give you more oil. We're kind of pumping as much as we can and their infrastructure has been operating for a long time. It's quite old. It's not, it's not easy to just quickly update that sort of stuff um so i think in terms of this in terms of the demand i think the demand is going to continue rising um whether or not the supply increases with that demand well that depends on, on governments and, and and companies and whether they choose to invest their money in finding more oil or whether they really strongly pivot towards renewables 
personally, I think oil has a still oil and gas has a still has a strong role in uh, in getting us there. I don't think the pivot to renewables is going to be as quick as people want it to be. Um, and ultimately, I think people around the world don't quite understand how much they rely on oil and gas in their lives for not just transport, but a range of other things as well. That's a really uh, excellent summary, Michael. I think we can we can come back to that in terms of investment considerations as well. It's certainly been reticent in a lot of um, investment people's minds, obviously. Let's move on to considerations, I guess, before exploring. Um, there's obviously a, a variety of factors that uh, a explorer needs to consider. Are you able to outline those? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said before, the most important thing if you're going to go out and explore is you need to be in a good uh, exploration environment, and that often starts with the price of oil. Uh, if you're considering going out and exploring or at least investing in companies that are exploring, uh, the price of oil funnels down through the majors. Um, when they're making money, then they can explore. When they're making money, they can invest in other people to explore. So ultimately, it comes to funding. Um, in a low-price environment, there's no funding for exploration. It just doesn't exist. Uh, in a high-price environment, you know these companies are all of a sudden making big money. I think Saudi Aramco... Uh, last quarter made something like 700 million US dollars per day in the last quarter. So all these companies, all these super majors, they're cashed up and at the moment they'll be looking for funding, but it's certainly important uh, moving forward and, and particularly towards a smaller end of the market. Uh, a lot of the smaller companies, you know, they rely on, uh, on majors and super majors to partner up with and fund their drilling. And if the money's not there, then it just doesn't happen. Um, on top of that, when you're exploring, you obviously depends where you are. You want to be in an area where you know you've got access to infrastructure. Um, if you're going to an area that's uh, underexplored, there's a lot more costs involved in uh, not only exploring but uh, any development moving forward. Um, and then, of course, uh, another important consideration is the fiscal policy in the area in which you want to explore. And so. This is both in terms of the deals you might do with the government as a company or the environmental policies that a country, uh, that a country employs. Um, for example, New Zealand recently uh, put a halt to awarding new offshore exploration blocks. Uh, so, you know, that's one obviously one example where uh, there's no need to go and explore because you won't have any luck uh, getting that through. But, um, you know, I think a lot of governments now uh, they were strongly on the environmental side for a while. Um, I think they're now starting to realise in a high oil price environment that the demand is still there. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see certain governments' uh, sentiments shift. You're already seeing it a little bit in the UK. Um, you're seeing it in Germany. Um, people are starting to realise that they need to rely on fossil fuels uh, a little bit more now so uh, that there are shortages. I think that's really interesting, the, the funding part you mentioned, Michael, where the larger companies that are making a lot of cash when the oil price is high are the ones that are often funding some of that new exploration, whereas traditionally people might think, with via joint ventures or other arrangements, but traditionally might be assumed that it's new money and new capital following the, following the oil price, but there's a bit of a sort of a combination there. I mean, truth, truthfully, uh, new capital, uh, the problem is that oil and gas is quite expensive, right? Exploration is really expensive. Um, so for someone, you know, for example, for private equity to come in and, and, and back 
someone to drill a well, you know, at a price, you know, offshore well can be anywhere from like 30 to 100 mil plus uh, Australian dollars. Um, private equity, they're not really the ones that go for that sort of stuff. You know, the, the, the majors understand the geology a lot better um, and they're all making so much money that for them, uh, 50 to 100 mil really isn't uh, enough to move the ticker. So it is definitely important. They have to be spending. I think it needs to trickle down into the into the smaller side of the market. Um, but yeah, it's uh, without them, it's hard to get things going. You know, it's, there's also considerations you have to make in terms of when you are drilling a well. You need to be a company that's able to, uh, if in the in a in a really bad case, you have like a massive oil spill, like what you saw in a, in the Gulf of Mexico. It's probably one of the more well-known ones, uh, Deepwater Horizon. You have a big oil spill catastrophe. It, the company that's operating that oil rig needs to be able to basically pay for all to fix that. So that's another challenge as a small company to go out and do your own drilling if you are in a case that, you know, you have a massive blowout and there's a huge oil spill, are you able to actually afford to uh, basically amend that? Are you able to fix it? Are you able to spend the money to repair what you've done? Uh, and the government, at least in Australia for sure, they take these sort of things into consideration moving forward. So, yeah, just, just going back on that, the majors are incredibly important uh, for anyone who's looking to explore. And the other thing I just wanted to dig into a bit was you mentioned the locale, proximity of infrastructure. When you say infrastructure, what, what is that infrastructure and, and does that vary depending on sort of the type of project? Yeah, so in terms of infrastructure, I mean, obviously, if you're in an area that's been well explored, uh, an example would be the UK North Sea, there's pipelines everywhere. And what that means is that you can, you can find, uh, I guess, you can find deposits that uh, maybe in some cases elsewhere without infrastructure might not be economic. Uh, but if you find something smaller in an area that's surrounded by oil pipelines and, uh, and, or, and oil and gas pipelines and you're able to tap into those, then it makes things more feasible. Um, in terms of infrastructure as well, I'm talking not just that, but also uh, environments that have been explored in already. So you have to consider whether you'd like to go into an area that's fairly frontier without much data uh, around for you to uh, evaluate or whether you want to go into an area that's been explored previously in which you have a lot of data points, a lot of uh, seismic surveys, there might already be gravity and magnetic surveys, um, and that can sort of help you, help guide you to where you want to uh, explore. That's great, Michael. I guess you've, you sort of mentioned those things, price of oil funding, uh, infrastructure, and, and I suppose known regions. Um, can you just... Explain a little bit about the, the funding and, and I guess the, the farm out uh, process and how that would involve for a junior and a major, that sort of thing. You know, I'm, I guess what I'm asking is um, investors might have seen the, the term owner or operator. Yeah. So as an operator, you essentially have control over what takes place uh, in your permit. So uh, an operator basically controls the direction of your exploration or, or, or your activity. So being an operator is good in a sense that, uh, let's say in an example that you do find something and you want to get straight at it, like you're in a, so let's say you're in a joint venture and you're 50-50 uh, with someone else, but you've got operatorship, you might drill a well, uh, you might find some oil, it's a good thing to have, uh, and then you might want to go straight away and do an appraisal well. 
and as the operator, you ultimately have control to just to uh, get that appraisal well happening, and then you're you're, you're demanding your fifty percent from your partner. Um, but yeah, it's uh, operatorship also puts a lot of responsibility on those on the operator. Uh, again, you're the one responsible for what happens uh, if things go wrong. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a good thing to have. It gives the operator, I guess, control over over where you're going with your exploration um, and anything moving forward post discovery. Uh, but then on top of that, it's uh, also risky. So generally, the operators uh, will be the bigger companies. So for a small cap, uh, a small cap oil and gas exploration company, generally what you'll do is you'll try and farm out to a a major or a super major, and what they'll generally do is take operatorship off you. So they might take you know 60 to 80 percent of the block. Um, they'll take the operatorship, and then what they'll do is they they'll use their money to drill the well for you. That was going to be my next question, Michael. Thanks for that. So it is quite typical for a small cap to give up operatorship to a super major so that they have the keys and can drive because you know these these companies are cash strapped as well, aren't they? So yeah. you know they they will flop free carry them. Is that is that is that a, some term we would use in other mining? Yeah. Free carry is a common term. Um, what it ultimately means for those who don't know what it, what it, what it uh, entails is that you've got small cap explorers on the ASX. Um, you know, let's say anyone below 100 to 50 mil market cap, um, you want to explore offshore, you're probably going to need 30 to 50 to 100 mil to drill your well offshore, depending on what sort of water depth and what sort of depth below seabed that you're, that you're targeting. So, what typically happens is that these small small cap or these these smaller companies, they'll do the technical work. They'll uh, they'll determine which prospects they like, which prospects they like the most. And what happens is they'll present to the majors and the super majors, and then ultimately, and a common deal might be that the majors will say, okay, we'll take eighty percent of the permit, we'll take operatorship, and we'll drill one well for you, and it'll be free carried. Um, what it does is it de-risks um, the small cap, the small company, and it gives them a 20% basically roll of the dice. Um, and, you know, it is kind of a roll of the dice in oil and gas. It's uh, it's really tough expiration. Um, obviously, the upside is enormous. And even at 20% uh, interest for a small company sub-50 mil market cap, if you were to go out and find, you know, uh, 100 million 100 million barrel discovery and you're getting 20 million barrels that's still a lot of money for a for a small company now where the operatorship can get a little cagey for a small company is if you do find something uh that's great you found oil and gas the problem is that the operator will then likely want to drill an appraisal well and depending on what sort of deal you've done generally you're only covered for your first exploration well and then what happens is when the appraisal well gets drilled and you're up for your 10, 20 million dollars, uh, at that point the operator can say, well, we need that money from you. And then you're in a bit of a pickle where usually you might then divest or let's say you go to the market and say, okay, we're going to raise that money. But either way, you need to come up with your money. You can need to come up with your share because you're not getting free carried anymore. That's a really brilliant explanation, Michael. I guess now we probably would turn to how we go about exploring for oil and gas. So can you take investors through some of the checklists or what a board would be looking at for any, you know, exploration? So there's obviously two ways for a company to get involved in a, a, we we call it acreage, but yeah, in in, I guess a permit. Um, 
So they can either farm in to an existing permit that another company owns, um, much what I was talking about before. I mean, it's not just uh, it's not just big companies teaming up with little companies. You know, you still get mid caps, small mid caps that team up together and uh, and share the costs on certain uh, expiration. Um, but if you did want to go out and pick up your own block, have it one hundred percent, you can still you can go through what the government does. It's a bidding process. So every year the government, at least in Australia, they do it in the UK too. Uh, they release a bunch of blocks. Um, if it's a block that you've been interested in, you might actually suggest to the government to release the, the block for bidding. And then what happens is you bid. So everybody puts forward a work program. If you like a block a little more than, uh, if you like a block a lot, you might do a quite uh, extensive work program. Um, and then what happens is those work programs generally are split into two periods. You've got your primary work program and your secondary work program. Pr program. Your primary work program is something that as you bid for, you are committed to that work program. And then at the end of that, usually they go for about three years. At the end of that, you then decide whether you want to continue with the secondary work program. Um, now, the, what you bid depends on how much you want the block. If you think it's a really hotly contested block, then you will make a really good bid. So bids can include uh, wells, uh, bids can include, include seismic, whether it be uh, acquiring new seismic, you might reprocess existing seismic, um, or yeah, I mean, or you might uh, you know, do gravity or magnetic surveys. Um, you can also take existing seismic and apply certain uh, geophysical processes to it to bring out certain things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's ultimately, it's, it's a bid. It's a live bid with other parties. If you're in a block that everybody wants, then you're going to have to put forward a bid that is uh, compelling uh, to beat everyone else. And even when you talk about blocks there, Michael, that might be something in people's heads, but that includes like underwater resources, does it? Can that be anywhere in the world, basically, in the Australian yes. context? By block, I'm talking basically permit. So you have the rights to a certain area offshore um, and what, you, what you're targeting is below the seabed. Um, so it's just, it's, it's, it's exactly the same as a mining permit, but just offshore or onshore. You still have onshore uh, petroleum permits as well. But yeah, when I say block, I'm just talking about permit. Yep. And a few of the things you sort of, as you covered off there, you've mentioned a lot about underwater stuff. Is that just because the, the primary exploration in Australia is offshore at the moment? Is that a fair statement? Uh, it's not necessarily the primary expression. We have a uh, we're pretty prolific on the northwest shelf of Western Australia. We've got a lot of gas, um, and we've got some seriously large projects going on there. But there's also a lot of onshore uh, oil and gas in uh, the Cooper Basin, Erramunga Basin in uh, South Australia and in, in Queensland. Thanks, Michael. You've covered off the company considerations there very well. But what about the actual exploration? Like, what's in the ground? What are you What are you looking for technically? So. When you're looking, when you're exploring for oil and gas, there's basically a handful of things that you're looking for. Firstly, you need to have a reservoir, and that is it's basically a, uh, a vessel that holds your oil and gas. So in a lot of cases, in conventional reservoirs, you've got sandstones, uh, which are common uh, in the conventional sense. And what that means is you've got a rock that contains oil and gas. Um, the quality of your reservoir can vary. Um, in terms of unconventional reservoirs like shale oil and shale gas, your oil and gas is actually contained in shale. 
Um, it's not a good reservoir in the sense that it has no porosity, it has no permeability. Uh, so to get that out, you need to frack, which a lot of people will have heard of. Uh, it's essentially making your own porosity and permeability in a rock that doesn't already have it. That's brilliant, Michael. Just going back to the reservoir, can you just define the porosity and permeability? So what defines a good reservoir is something that you're able to basically produce oil and gas out of. So as oil and gas is produced in the, uh, in the earth, it basically migrates its way into a reservoir. And what you want from a good reservoir is good porosity, good permeability, and ultimately the ability to remove that oil or gas from that reservoir. So that's, uh, that's one of you know, a handful of parameters that are really important when you're looking for oil and gas. Um, the other one is obviously source. And what we mean by source is you need to have a rich source rock. Uh, generally, these are rocks that have high organic con uh, carbon content. Uh, and what happens is over time, they gather uh, basically organic carbon, they bury themselves, they get to certain depths, they heat up uh, and they're, they're, they're kind of uh, exposed to high heat and high pressures, and then they expel oil and gas. Um, so source is another important one. Charge is another important one, and that ultimately relates to the oil and gas that's coming out of your source rock. Uh, so you can have a really nice source rock with good organic content, but ultimately if it hasn't been heated up and put under the pressure and if the oil and gas hasn't been produced, then it's kind of useless. Um, then once you, have, once you have reservoir and you have your source, and you have your oil and gas expelling from your source rock, then it needs to be trapped somewhere. Now, trap can kind of be set into two components. Firstly, you need a competent seal. So these might be more shales that overlay, say, a sandstone. Uh, ultimately, what happens is the sandstone fills up with hydrocarbons, and then the seal is what stops them from continuing to migrate upwards or, or across. Um, that's another really important component. And then you've got your trap. So there are two types of traps that are common in conventional uh, geology, uh, conventional exploration. Uh, you have a structural trap and a stratigraphic. Now, it's not going to be easy for me to explain this without a diagram, and us geologists really like drawing stuff. But structural is ultimately, if, I, if you kind of imagine, I guess, a mountain sticking out of the ground, that sort of shape. Oil and gas likes to migrate upwards through the section. And what you're looking for is a structural trap, like a mountain for oil to fill up. So if you imagine from underneath a mountain, oil coming upwards, filling into the mountain, and then it gets trapped in that spot. And then ultimately what you're doing with your wells is trying to drill through the top of that mountain and hit that oil or gas. Um, stratigraphic is a little more challenging to explain. Um, ultimately, it still involves reservoir and a seal, but instead of a structural uh, trap you're basically running your reservoir up into up into a seal or in some cases it might be a shale uh, might be a shale channel or you might have individual pulses of sand that are encapsulated by uh, impermeable shales and then what happens is you're not actually requiring a structural trap because your sand itself is trapped uh, surrounded by impermeable rocks uh, so that's my best best effort at trying to explain that with our diagram hopefully uh, you guys understood that 
Yeah, that's great. And I think that's they're just important factors because it's certainly things that are going to be announced to the market in you know, various updates. It might be something people are exploring for or where they've had success and having a bit of an understanding about the differences, I think is really useful for people. Yeah, I think, I mean, this what I'm talking here is very technical stuff and uh, most people in the market won't need to worry about that. I mean, ultimately, when it comes to the market, people explore and the result is they either find oil and they find gas. Um, at that point, if they do find oil, then the most important thing is more so, you know, your reservoir. Is it producible? Is it is yeah? Is it producible? Are you going to get the oil and gas out of it easily? Um, just one thing that I think is important to mention is the things I spoke about before: reservoir, source, charge, seal, trap. All those things combine to give prospects a risking. So you'll often see uh, with prospective resources or certain prospects, they'll be risked. So. That can range really anywhere from uh, five to fifty percent for expiration targets. Um, sometimes more, depending on what's nearby. But it's important for you to understand that when you're looking at that number as a percentage, it's a uh, combination of all these all these handful of parameters. Uh, and how it generally works is that in an expiration company, you'll have uh, a few technical people. They'll all go through. They'll evaluate each of those parameters, single like each single parameter, and then what they'll do is they'll put put forward their own prospect risk, and then it ends up being usually an average of everyone's risking. In terms of that risk, I'm guessing the depth of a drill is important, regardless of whether it's onshore or offshore. But does the the water depth and things matter as well from that sort of risk risk assessment process? Yeah, I mean definitely. Um, deep water drilling is more expensive than shallow water drilling, no doubt about it. Um, there are some benefits sometimes to drilling in deeper water. For example, when you're shooting seismic data, deeper water generally produces better quality data. There are issues that you have uh, shooting seismic in shallow water. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the highest costs come from the amount of rock you have to drill through. So being onshore versus offshore, obviously, you're taking out the water component when you're on when you're onshore. Um, that that plays out a large uh, amount into the costs. Um, offshore is definitely a lot more expensive game. Um, but if you're doing if you're drilling in you know a thousand meters of water and then you're only drilling a thousand meters of rock, um, you're not going to have a super expensive well. It's more so you get into deep water and then you're drilling also deep into the uh, below the seabed. That's when your uh, costs can really start to blow out. Mm. This is fascinating, Michael. I just want to come back to something that we probably as investors or punters see quite often, you know, that the, the presence of hydrocarbons, which you've sort of touched on and, and, you know, some of those other technical terms like BBL, BCF, TCF, do you want to just sort of outline those to the listeners too? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's uh, there's three types of hydrocarbons you generally find. Um, one's the first is oil. Uh, then you can find gas, probably the next common or they're both sorry, as common as each other. And then you've got condensate, um, which is a little more complex. And condensate is basically separated out of the natural gas as it's brought up to surface. Um, when it hits uh, regular temperature and pressure uh, at atmospheric conditions. Um, and then what you've got is oil is typically uh, quantified in barrels. And you might often see this abbreviated as BBL. Um, and then the measure of gas is usually in BCF or TCF, and what that stands for is billion cubic feet and trillion cubic feet. And what is even more uh, detailed 
uh, a, a, a standard cubic foot is basically the, um, the is, a, is a foot cubed of gas at atmospheric conditions. Uh, so basically standard temperature and pressure at sea level. Uh, and then what you've got is BCF, TCS is a billion of those and a trillion of those. Um, they're, they're terms that you'll commonly see used for uh, gas discoveries. And that condensate you mentioned, Michael, that's obviously less commonly referred to. Is that a like is that a byproduct or something, or what's the what's that used for yeah. normally? Is it extracted and then sold, or is it just something that's unwanted and stripped out? No, condensate is uh, is um, is highly desirable. Uh, it's ultimately a super light oil. Um, so when you've got you've got a scale, uh, it's called API, which is basically a measure of uh, oil's viscosity. Uh, starts at zero and it goes up to uh, something like uh, you know 80, 90 API. Um, when you're down the lower end, zero to 25, you're talking about really heavy oils. In some cases, tar sands, um, which you see some in Venezuela, you see it in Canada. And then as you go up to 25 to 50, 60 API, you start getting into lighter oils, which are more desirable. And ultimately, what uh, a lighter oil means is there's less, less refining required to make them use usable in certain products, for example, gasoline, diesel, um, that sort of stuff. Um, and condensate is is obviously a very light oil. Um, it's a byproduct of wet gas. So in some cases, you might end up with a dry gas discovery. Uh, in some cases, you might end up with a wet gas discovery. And what wet gas means is that there are associated liquids that as you extract the gas from the reservoir and bring it up to atmospheric conditions, that you may uh, end up with some associated liquids with that. That's brilliant. Uh, you mentioned wet gas. I, you've just triggered something else for me. I do recall seeing the, the terms wet Jurassic play being used quite a bit from, you know, various presentations. Does that relate to that API and that sort of lighter oil? Can you... Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's the same thing. It's um, we're talking gases with associated liquids. So in some cases, it's uh, it can be a little bit troublesome because you, if you want to do just a pure gas development, then liquids uh, they need to be extracted and you have to do something with them. Uh, so, but at the same time, those liquids can obviously command some more uh, revenue. So if you are willing to extract them and uh and sell them then you obviously uh can profit from that as well but yes uh when you're talking wet jurassic what they're referring to is wet gas okay fascinating i guess we probably need to sort of move to that pre-expiration drill stage and that's the the surveying do you want to um outline i guess the process and how you look to, to do that as a company or an explorer yeah so it really depends what sort of uh area you're going into so Exploration, you can obviously move into an area uh, that's been explored before, or you can go into a purely uh, frontier region where uh, no one spent a lot of money yet on exploration. Um, so in oil and gas, I think one of the best things you can have is a nearby well that's already been drilled, because wells in general, uh, as they're drilled, you get a lot of information out of them. Um, some companies might actually do coring, um, and what it is is it gives you a better understanding of going back to those uh, five or so, uh, or those more so those four uh, parameters that we mentioned before, the reservoir, the source, the seal, that sort of thing. Uh, well points, I guess, at that point are invaluable because if you don't have any wells, then you ultimately don't know what's down there. Um, 
you can do even you could do seismic surveys you can see what's underneath the subsurface but it won't actually tell you what those rocks are until you've drilled up a, a, a well into them um, so tie points are important and they don't always have to be uh, nearby um, you could have a well that's hundreds of kilometers away and you might have seismic that links uh, that well up to what you're looking at and you might be able to uh to work out from that what sort of rocks you're looking at but yeah i think first and foremost nearby well ties are important um, and that just comes down to the sort of risk you're willing to take uh, in a frontier region without that many wells that haven't been drilled. Uh, your risk is obviously a lot higher, but at the same time, you're in an area that people haven't explored before. So there's a good chance you might, or it's not a good chance, but there's a chance that you might find something very significant. Um, so yeah, you start, I guess, with wells. They are readily available, at least in Australia and UK, for example, you can grab all the information online. Uh, the government requires you to uh, to release that information to the public after a certain amount of time. Um, so that's just basically one of the one of the governing laws of, of exploration in Australia and the UK. Um, but then on top of that, you then have seismic surveys. So for those people who don't know what a seismic survey is, it's essentially a way to image the subsurface. Um, when you're offshore and we're talking about 500,000 metre uh, water depths, uh, you're obviously not going to go down there and, uh, and, 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 and test certain things. So seismic survey is uh, a way of seeing what's below the surface. Um, these are, can be expensive, particularly offshore. Um, you also have 2D versus 3D seismic. So 2D seismic would be ultimately just a line of seismic and you can see what's going on beneath the seabed, or you can have a 3D seismic, which is a, 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 a basically a, a, a area uh, that the seismic covers uh, in a 3D sense. And I've, I've seen before, Michael, that mentioned like purchasing data sets of you know, seismic surveys by some companies and things and reprocessing of old stuff. Is that, is it the sort of data that's um, like a commodity between companies or how does that sort of collection and so, so a lot of companies, big companies with a lot of money will usually go out and acquire their own data. Um, and what that does is it gives you exclusivity to that data. So if you've got a block and you want to shoot data and you don't want anyone else to know what's, what's going on there, then you'll shoot it yourself. Uh, but that obviously incurs a big cost. Uh, there's another way of doing things. You can take existing data and you can reprocess it. So basically every year, um, the technologies improve so you can always go back to old data sets get the original data or the original they call them tapes um, and then go through and reprocess them and see things that people might have seen 10 years ago in the same data set so that's an alternative and then on top of that you have companies uh, they're called multi-client service companies you've got companies that will go out and acquire the data they'll ultimately like underwrite that 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 data value uh, and then they, they're actually allowed to sell that data to, you know, X amount of companies. Um, there's really no limit to how many they can sell it to. Uh, but ultimately that data, it's, it's private to you and it's private to the, uh, to the data or the, the multi-client owner. Um, but it will potentially go out to a number of different companies. So usually with a multi-client, they'll, they'll acquire data in areas they think are prospective. And then companies that are interested in those areas might come to them 
and say, okay, I want this data, but you know, this is their way of getting it without spending all the money themselves on it. So it's basically a discounted uh, data set. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's sort of like a little sub-industry of, of, of an exploration. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a big industry. There's plenty of money to be made in it. Um, definitely uh, the seismic acquisition industry is huge, um, but it's not just seismic. They, um, they do multi-client uh, services for all sorts of things. You know, they might um, put together a, a QC uh, data set of wells, you know, and, uh, and sell them to people, or they might do other sort of... Uh, other sort of uh, gravity magnetic surveys, um, seabed sampling, that sort of thing, and they can all all be sold multi-client. Again, these are all things that companies can do on their own, um, but in some cases, it's just easier and cheaper, and it makes areas a little more prospective for companies if they can pay a little less and uh, just take a multi-client product. Product. Yeah, cool. And, and in terms of that seismic data, so what's what's that used for, and how does that sort of get applied to deciding whether somewhere's worth progressing further? So seismic is a good way for explorers to look at a broad area. Um, ultimately, the goal of seismic is to uh, inform people where they should drill. So let's say you've got, you've got your block, you've picked up a block from, from, through the bidding round. Um, in most cases, particularly in offshore Australia, where there's already a lot of data that's available, you might have looked at the existing data and, and thought, you know, there's something here that people have missed. Um, or you might think that you can take the existing data and reprocess it and bring out something that people might have seen before. Um, but ultimately, seismic's important um, for when you want to drill because you need to know what you're drilling into just from a safety perspective, but also to try and ensure that you hit exactly what it is you, you're planning on hitting uh, when you drill into the, uh, into the, uh, into the sub, subsea. Um, and then what happens is, uh, 3D seismic is even more sort of descriptive in allowing you to see what's going on down below. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's an incredibly important tool uh, for when you're drilling wells and, uh, and, and being able to see what's down there. On top of that, seismic also offers uh, certain uh, things like you might be able to see gas in seismic, um, have things called DHIs, which are direct hydro hydrocarbon indicators. Um, so you might be able to see uh, a gas chimney, which is basically uh, it's more like this. It's kind of like a fuzzy sort of uh, uh, vertical feature in the data uh, that shows gas migrating. And, and it might be a, a way of saying to you, uh, yeah, I can actually see that there uh, is a producing uh, or a working petroleum system in this area. Um, you have AVO, which is AVO stands for amplitude versus offset. And I'll keep it really uh, summarised, but ultimately you can look for bright spots in the data, sometimes with gas and now, even now with new technology, sometimes with oil, uh, hydrocarbons can actually literally light up in the data. Um, they're not always a sure thing, but in a lot of, in, in, in some cases you uh, can use that to sort of uh, uh, explore uh, with a bit more accuracy. Just on the seismic then, Michael, um... I guess, you know, there's there's a lot of information here, but are there any similarities to investors that are used to, you know, hard rock, base metals, you know, do you do do you look for magnetics, you know, any sort of structuring, structural stuff similar to, I guess, most other types of exploration? Yeah, I think there are some uh, synergies between uh, oil and gas and, uh, and mining for sure. Um, the big difference, obviously, between oil and gas and mining is, 
the cost of exploration in terms of drilling in and actually figuring out what rocks you have there. Um, with oil and gas, you really only get one shot at it. And we're talking, you know, millions of dollars spent to drill that one, one hole. Uh, I guess mining, uh, drilling is cheaper. It's predominantly onshore, so it's on land. Um, that itself makes it cheaper. And, and, you can, and you're not drilling, you know, two, three, four kilometres below the surface. You're drilling sometimes, you know, 50 metres below the surface. You might go down to like 500 to a K, um, but that's starting to get towards the deeper end of, uh, of mining. Um, but, yeah, I think the big difference is the cost of drilling. Um, but gravity as well can be used in, in oil and gas to look for structural highs. Uh, you might, in an area that hasn't been explored, try to find out where the basins sit um, and what gravity and magnetics can do can give you a, a rough sort of basement depth, basin depth. Um, but then you can also go ahead and, 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 and sample the seabed. So much like going out and doing soil sampling, you might sample the seabed uh, and look for signs of, of leakage. So sometimes oil and gas is produced uh, in the uh, in the section subsection, and it can migrate upwards and end up coming out at the seabed. And then you can sample, and, and that can kind of be a way of knowing that there's a working petroleum system in the area. Um, on top of that, with oil and gas, something kind of interesting is as oil potentially leaks out from the seabed, uh, it obviously floats up because it's lighter than water and it'll sit on top of the ocean and there are actually uh, satellites that look for oil slicks. Um, obviously, uh, sometimes they can be thrown off by uh, man-made man oil slicks, uh, given all the ships and boats that are around, um, but they have ways of, of determining. They basically look at uh, different camera shots uh, at different times. And if you have a recurring oil slick that you keep seeing in the same area over and over, then it's a pretty good chance that it's not a uh, uh, coming from a, a ship or anything like that. So that's uh, another way of sort of determining whether you've got a working petroleum system. Thanks, Michael. That, this is absolutely fascinating stuff. I'm, I know uh, a lot of listeners are going to be learning heaps. Um, I guess now we've we've talked about the, the the things you need to have, whether the structure, the surveying. Um, I guess now you're looking at the drilling. What sort of what are we looking for in a discovery? What what constitutes uh, I guess a discovery? And, and and I've heard the term a technical success or an actual commercial success. So maybe just take us through that. Yeah. So everybody when they start uh, exploration, uh, obviously the first thing they do is they identify prospects, um, and then they'll figure out which prospect they like the most, and then they'll go ahead and drill at it. And when they're looking for these things. They're obviously looking for commercial success. Um, that's the ultimate goal. But there's also things called technical successes. So if you were, for example, looking in an area, you thought you were going to find oil. And when I say oil, I mean opposed to finding gas. So you say, okay, I'm looking at this prospect. I think I'm going to find oil. Uh, you drill it and ultimately you find oil. Um, that might be what you consider a technical success. Now, whether it's commercial then depends on, well, how much oil is there and can I actually extract it out of that uh, reservoir? So finding oil is great. You know, it's, it's, it's an awesome thing and it's quite hard to do, even in, the sense, even in an example where they don't become commercial. You know, finding oil uh, is truly a success because it's not that easy to do, but then taking it to that next step of being commercial, there's a few different things that are, that are important to make that work. Um, 
Now, firstly, going back to those original parameters we spoke about, um, you obviously need to find oil in a good reservoir. Um, finding oil in a bad reservoir uh, limits what you can do with it. Um, now, obviously we're looking for, I think the, the most common thing you'll find when, you, when you're drilling into conventional oil discoveries or gas discoveries is uh, in an ASX announcement, you probably hear about things like the size of the, of the discovery, but also the porosity and the permeability. So there's no real rule, rule of thumb. Ultimately, you're looking for things that are permeable because that directly relates to your ability to take the hydrocarbons out of the rock. Um, porosities, I'd say 10% is around fair. 15% porosity is getting good above 20%. Porosity is, is excellent. Um, permeabilities is measured in millidarcies. Um, one to 10 is probably poor permeability. Five, 10 to 50 starts to go fair to moderate. Um, 50 to 250 millidarcies is good. And 250 to 1,000 or, or basically one darcy would what be what you consider great. Um, and these are all sort of things that you need to tick off for it to be commercial, but even then you still wouldn't be able to determine that just from these, this data. Um, ultimately what happens is you make your discovery and if you do find something, you usually have to then drill another one or two wells uh, to appraise that discovery. Um, you also will go in and do a flow test, um, which is important for basically figuring out if oil is going to flow and will it flow at sustained rates. Um, but yeah, it's a, there's a lot of uh, complicated stuff. Um, you start off with finding the oil and the gas, uh, and then you work from there to try and uh, determine whether uh, you can actually take it out and, and, and have a commercial success. And in terms of all those, um, I guess, technical specifications of the well that's been drilled, how are they measured? I mean, I've heard of like wireline sampling and things. Is that a technical part of the process as well as to how that's collected? Yeah, so there's, um, there's actually, while you're drilling, this is the one thing, good thing about oil and gas in comparison to mining is you kind of get the answers to, uh, you need pretty soon after you make your discovery. So there's no uh, there's no eight to twelve week turnarounds in the assay labs. Uh, it's uh, it's more more or less pretty pretty instant once you've got the tool down there. So as the well's drilling, there's actually a tool that follows the drill bit. Uh, it's called LWD. It stands for logging while drilling. Um, it's limited into what that can gather. Uh, but you do see some data, it'll tell you, you know, if you're in sand or if you're in shale, it might tell you if it's starting to pick up on, um, on high gas readings. Uh, you also get data from the drilling mud uh, that's used while you're drilling. Um, but ultimately, the, the best tool you can get is the wireline tool, which happens after you finish drilling. And then we're talking about the days following uh, the completion of drilling. Um, and what that does is it goes down and it picks up all sorts of things from porosity to permeability. It tells you uh, your uh, oil, gas, water saturations. Um, and yeah, it, it can give you a better idea of what you've got going down there. And there are guys, there are people in the industry called petrophysicists who are specialized in, analy specialize in analyzing that data. And they can tell you sort of exactly uh, what sort of uh, rocks you've got down there. And then ultimately what that leads to is... Uh, you end up with a pay zone. Uh, it starts off as a gross pay zone. So let's say you've got a hundred meter column uh, that you can uh, that you, of, of hydrocarbons. Uh, then you've got to take from that hundred meter gross column and work out how much of that column is actually uh, productive sands or, or quality sands, 
and that would be your net sand. And then you end up with a, with a, with a, a ratio called net versus gross. Um, and you want those values to be high. You obviously want uh, good quality sands throughout your uh, discovery. So yeah, once you've determined uh, the quality of reservoir, what that ultimately determines is how many wells are required to extract the hydrocarbons from your reservoir. So obviously in good productive sands with high permeability, you ultimately need less wells to produce field. Um, Fields sometimes are compartmentalized. Um, so they might be uh, separated by faults. Uh, ultimately, in an ideal sense, you want one giant uh, pool of hydrocarbons uh, in a highly permeable and high porosity uh, reservoir. So obviously the number, so I'm guessing the number of wells then like obviously is one of these economic contributors as well is whether a project's sort of viable and might mean there's a known resource that's sitting there, but isn't going to come in production at a low oil price, but something the price might go up significantly and then that production starts or becomes more more viable? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, obviously the number of wells required to extract the hydrocarbons um, is, uh, is, a, is sort of like directly related to the, to the cost uh, required. So wells are expensive. You want to drill the least amount of wells possible to extract your hydrocarbons. Um, so that's more so possible with good quality reservoir um, and that's where light versus heavy oil comes into it as well light oil is easier to extract gas is even easier to extract michael i think what i want to know is you've talked about what constitutes a discovery you mentioned how expensive uh, it is to drill oil and gas wells i'm sure every oil and gas person has has what with that, we're going to come to the investic implications later, obviously, but I guess what I'm asking is what constitutes a failure? What are the things that you know, oh, this, is, this isn't looking good, you know, like, like the mud creeping out or what are some of those things that are bad early on? Well, you pretty much the thing with oil and gas is generally you have, you know, a small amount of targets. So you might be drilling for a kilometre or two before you even reach your target reservoir. What constitutes a bad well? Uh, either you get into the reservoir and you can't find, and you see that there's no oil or gas, there's no hydrocarbons. So at that point, you pretty much know you've got a failure. Um, oil costs can blow out. Sometimes you have issues where you're drilling through certain sections and uh, you might lose mud through fractures that are beneath the surface. Um, sometimes the drill bit can get stuck. Uh, and there's an attempt to try and retrieve that. But if it doesn't work out, you might need to do what they call a sidetrack, which is basically you retract the drill bit um, and then you kick off to the side and you basically start drilling down a, a different borehole. Um, all these things, they're not super uncommon. Sidetracks do happen. Um, obviously, it contributes to the well cost uh, when you do that. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, it comes back down to... When you're drilling a well uh, and you're in an area, for example, that has uh, other wells that have been drilled around it, there's a lot of time and effort that's, that's put into determining the risks that you're going to face drilling your well. So you look at the wells that have been drilled nearby and did they encounter any fractures? Did they have any issues? And then basically you try and mitigate that risk uh, with your well moving forward. And it's just a safety thing. It's a safety thing and, and, and I guess uh, to do with, you know how much you're you're willing to risk a, 
financially uh, if things were to go wrong. Um, so, yeah, in terms of, I guess, the, the flip side of that, on the positive note, when there is oil and gas discovered in the, dr- in the, the drilling, um, can you talk us through how that's measured and then quantified and what, how, what turns it into a resource of some description? Yeah, so obviously when you're drilling a well, there's still uh, a bit of ambiguity as to what you're drilling into. You might have wells nearby uh, that can, can give you an indication of what you're going to encounter, but ultimately until you've drilled through it, you don't exactly know. So let's say you're targeting, uh, you're targeting oil, you've, you've made a prediction that it's going to be X big, uh, your prospect, um, you drill into your target reservoir, and you might be able to see oil straight away coming up uh, through the mud system. Um, you may see uh, high gas readings on your uh, on your logging. Um, at that point, you might think you've uh, you've found oil and gas, but ultimately, the the main tool you use to determine what you've got is your wireline logging. So let's say in the case that you do think you found oil, you go th- go in with your wireline logging, and then what happens is you get a better understanding of what sort of rocks you have down there. Do you have good uh, reservoir? It, do you have oil or is it gas? Um, because usually you're only really seeing um, your hydrocarbon content. Um, and then what happens is from there, uh, you might go in and do some coring potentially. Um, you might go in and do another well at some point down the line. Maybe just dial it back and, and just talk about the difference between, you know, your resources, contingent resources, prospective resources, 1P, 2P, 3P. This is the stuff that people see all the time and I see all the time and I, I, it confuses me every now and then too. Yeah, so we'll split them up into the three. So a prospective resource is basically a high-level estimate which sets a target for the company to potentially discover through drilling. Um, so what you want there is you want a big number. And it gets split up into three different numbers usually. All right? and they, it's usually a 1U or a 2U or a 3U, which is what you might commonly see in, uh, in a company's presentation. Now, what the 1, 2, and 3 stand for are basically 90, 50, and 10% confidence, uh, respectively. So what it means is that your 1U number is what you think you what or you think you've got a 90% chance of finding. Your 2U is what you think you might have a 50% chance of finding. And your 3U, which is typically your biggest number, is what you think you might have a 10% chance of finding. So prospective resource is typically what you apply to expiration targets. And then what happens is you'll go ahead and you drill your well. And then from there, you might be able to upgrade it to a contingent resource. So a contingent resource is when a company has discovered recoverable oil or gas, but they need to basically classify these as contingent because they are not able to be pulled out of the ground economically, or at least they don't know that they can be pulled out just yet. So once you once you know you've found oil, you might actually go and do an appraisal well, and then what happens is you come up with a contingent resource. These are often labelled as 1C, 2C, and 3C. Again, we're talking about 90%, 50%, 10% confidence. And until they are basically classified as reserves, which is the next step. They'll remain as contingent until they can be proven to be economic. The final step is for your discovery to become reserves. Um, and basically what, it, what a reserve is, is a quantity or an amount of oil or gas that a company believes can be economically recovered from a known discovery. Um, these will often be labeled as 1P, 2P and 3P. And again, that's 90%, 50%, and 10% respectively of being recoverable. So 
ultimately your prospective resource, we're talking big numbers. Um, you want that to be a nice spread. Uh, you want your, your three U to be a large number. It's almost like your upside. Um, but you also want your lower side number generally to be somewhere above what's economic. For example, on the Northwest shelf, uh, offshore, you're looking at usually around 15 to 20 million barrels is your minimum economic field size for a standalone development um, in terms of barrels. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's ultimately where you want uh, your two, one you to sit at least there or above. It's almost like your way of saying, okay, in a downside case, we'd still manage to make this economical. So if you've just if you've just announced this discovery and you've now got your contingent resources up to reserves, is there any body or an independent group that would you know certify this? Like like I guess the you know the the, the equivalent. See if I'm right is you know the mining's jort code and standards and that sort of thing. Yeah. So you have the uh, people who do independent certification. Uh, and this doesn't actually just apply to reserves. This applies to both your prospective resource, your sorry, all your prospective resource, your contingent resource, and your reserves. So, for example, a company who's putting together a bunch of prospects that they're thinking they want to drill, um, they'll come out with certain volumes that they think they're going to find, and they might go to a group, say, like RISC or ERCE, uh, who are both advisories, and say to them, guys, can you check this and just make sure that our numbers are all right? And what they'll generally look at is all the parameters that were used to determine those volumes and to determine uh, your 1U, 2U, 3U, or your Cs or your Ps. Um, and they'll make sure that you're, as a, you as a company aren't using values that don't really make sense. Um, and again, this comes back to the data points that these sort of groups have uh, in terms of nearby wells. They might have a you know, a whole bunch of uh, QC data points that they can look at and just go, okay, yeah, their parameters are actually within the ballpark. Right. Okay. I just have a couple of final questions just to, to tie all this off. That's been really, really informative, Michael. If I've understood you correctly, uh, with all the surveying and the seismic that you've done or an oil and gas company has done, have I understood correctly that You've actually delineated the resources pre the drilling, and the drilling is is confirming that and getting you up to that prospective contingent reserve. Is that right? I think uh, I think that seismic uh, and gravity surveys and all those sort of things. Seismic are probably one of the most useful. Um, they can only get you so far. Ultimately, with oil and gas, you need to drill your well um, to work out what's down there. So even in seismic, you can find uh, DHIs, which we spoke about before, um, that, that might tell you that there's gas in an area or oil in an area, but ultimately nothing's a certainty until you've gone and drilled into that rock to know what, what's there. So you have nearby wells, uh, you have examples of successes and failures that are nearby, and they can, again, help you uh, kind of theorise what you think's going to be down there, but ultimately you don't know until you've drilled that well. Mm, no, that's fascinating. And again, excuse my ignorance, and I, I keep trying to draw a comparison, and maybe that's not fair, but given the cost of drilling, which you've really outlined, is, is, a, is a comparable way of saying this is like oil and gas drilling is the equivalent of like a diamond drill in, in mining because you, you're really got a, you've got a higher confidence, like you've gone through those surveys and that iterative process to really have high confidence. 
definitely i'd say um i'd say in mining diamond drilling is probably the the final the final sort of drilling that you'll do um to try and extract the most information from uh your data point i guess um oil and gas I, you're only doing really one drill um but i guess i'd say your first exploration drill might be your rc and then you'd go back in uh, and potentially do some coring and that might be considered the diamond drilling uh, and that would be like an appraisal well but you'd only do that once you've found something so yeah i think um so there there is some similarities the, the appraisal well and then you've got the commercial i just found it interesting because it, it sounded like you mentioned at the start that there was a exploratory well and that might be a technical success but the reservoir you know like there's oil there but the reservoir is not good and you've, you've now found stuff, but you need to go back to the drawing board and, you know, prove up, you know, better information on the surveys and then drill another another bore, a more commercial one, right? Yeah. So usually how it goes is you drill your exploration well. Uh, that'll be an RC drill. Uh, you'll go in and you drill through and then you use the wire to determine the quality of your rocks down there, the quality of your discovery base for it, should there be one. Um, and then the next step is to drill your appraisal well. Um, and what that does more so is determines the extent of your field, because not only does your field have a vertical height in terms of like, say, a column height, uh, the amount of oil uh, vertically, but it also has a lateral extent, um, which you can only generally confirm. You might have an idea of where it goes laterally, but you need to confirm that with the well to determine basically how big your field is. And then what you might do is actually go back again with the second appraisal well uh, and drill through basically close to where your original exploration well is and core it so that you can get an even better understanding of the producibility of your reservoir. Um, you might want to get a better understanding of the source rock that you have in, uh, in your well. Um, but yeah, I'd say coring that, that last appraisal well is usually to try and determine the nature of your reservoir so your core and you might do a flow test as well to see uh, what sort of flow rates you're getting what sort of drop off you're getting lastly one technical term I, people have seen it you know most of us understand it but uh you know in terms of measuring boe do you want to just quickly cover that off yeah so boe is a barrel of oil equivalent and what it is is just uh, a way of standardizing natural gas and other energy resources to a barrel of oil's energy um, ultimately, what you're doing is in some cases, you might find uh, oil and gas in one uh, discovery, uh, and it's a way of uh, combining both the oil and the gas resource into one number. I think it's roughly something like 6,000 cubic feet of gas is equivalent to a barrel of oil, um, but this can obviously vary. Um, it depends on the component of gas, uh, of the composition of the gas, sorry. Um, but yeah, it's more so just a way to abbreviate your total resource. Fascinating. Michael, this has been truly um, informative and I know many of the listeners will appreciate this and like me, will probably have to go back and listen to some of these technical terms. We thank you so much for, for being on the show and we look forward to uh, also chatting to you with, uh, in part two of this episode about investment considerations in, in oil and gas in the small cap industry. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, definitely a, a workout for my voice. Uh, hopefully people uh, learn a few things in the, in the podcast and uh, 
again, if, if anyone's got any questions, I'm always happy to uh, help people out. Yeah, thanks again, Michael. And as Sam said, like I've learned heaps myself just having this conversation now, and I'm sure listeners will get a lot from it as well. So look forward to speaking again soon. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.